everyone listening or watching now is the product of a caregiver. Because of the way we evolved, humans require caregivers to nurture us from birth until such time as we become independent of our caregivers. Then, after that period of independence, a period of time that I assure you will feel far too brief once it has passed, we will require caregivers once again. But here's something weird. Most of us, despite our reliance on caregiving, never think about caregiving before we become caregivers ourselves. But when it happens, when you become a caregiver, your life totally changes. And because so few people who aren't caregivers really think about caregiving, your new life as a caregiver can be a lonely one. Our guest today, Rachel Austin, is changing that. Rachel founded the Love Labor Project to connect caregivers, especially young caregivers, so that they can be emotionally supported by people who understand what they're going through. You can connect to the Love Labor Project on Instagram. They are at Love Labor Project. In this episode of Bottomless Coffee, Brendan and I got a chance to catch up with Rachel personally and sit back as she pulled the curtain back for us on a way of life that was, before this conversation, something we really didn't understand. If you haven't already, please become a Bottomless Coffee community member at patreon.com slash bottomlesscoffee to support our work and our community. Let's do it. Hey, Brendan. Hey, Jerome. How's it going? Oh my gosh, I'm having the best day. I am very caffeinated, really excited to be here. Uh, despite the name of the show, Bottomless Coffee, I am fully dressed. Um, this time, this time, but you never know. How are you? I'm good. Uh, despite the name of the show, I don't really drink coffee. So oh, yes. I'm not caffeinated, um, but I'm also doing equally well. Because instead of caffeination, I just sleep till 11. Okay, this is uh, like a shorter segue than I was expecting because today <laughs> we're gonna be talking about self-care. And I really think that one of the things that I do to take care of myself and one of the things that gives me joy is like sipping on like a nice cup of coffee and knowing that I'm gonna have like a productive buzz in the very, very, very near future. Uh, productive buzz, now yes. that's a podcast name. Oh, that is a podcast. <laughs> that is that is our gift to anyone who is listening or watching this right now. Um, what do you do to take care of yourself, Brendan? Well, so a lot of people around me do meditation, whether like mindful or transcendental or just, you know, kind of winging it meditation. And I always felt kind of meditation shamed that I like didn't. And I was also bad at it. And I'm like, maybe I do need to center myself because like we're trying to balance all of the work that we do. That's, you know, regular work. Uh, if you have schoolwork to do and you're studying, if you have work taking care of yourself, that's work. Social interactions and taking care of other people are all like energies we balance. Right. And so I was like, well, I sure do a lot of that. So we should, you know, center it. Um, I, feel, I don't meditate. I feel as though if I did not drink as much coffee as I do, then I would be in a constant state 
of meditation. And so it <laughs> baffles me that you who don't drink coffee are not always like in this centered Zen place. No, that's just my brain is automatically on the coffee level all the time. And so I actually have to bring it down, um, which actually going going to the gym um, is similar to meditation for me, where you focus on your breathing, you kind of push out other thoughts, you uh, get in tune with your body. So yeah. that's what I've been doing. Are you a cardio and a weights person? Um, I will run if I am being chased by a bear. <laughs> And even then, not that far. Okay, so you don't get like the runner's high. Mm-mm, that's, no, mm-mm. no, 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 I do not. I get not that. The stairmaster high, the runner's high, nothing. If I run for like half an hour, um, then I will get to the runner's high. But then I'm so tired that I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm done. I know the runner's high exists, and I think that's just good enough for me. Yeah. No, I um, experienced it like once or twice in eighth grade cross country and uh, figured out it wasn't for me. But do you get like a similar like weightlifters high or anaerobic exercise kind of high? Yes, I do. Okay. Because after you expend like lots and lots of energy moving weight, I looked at my app the other day and said I had moved 65,000 pounds over the hour and a half that I was working. Hold on, hold on. What app is this? They might want to sponsor. You never it's know. called FitBod. Um, it generates it workouts for you, <laughs> and it shows you how to do the workouts. It's great. Um, please give us money. <laughs> FitBod. Yeah, but it showed me 65,000 pounds is what I moved, which pretty is pretty cool. cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. With nice. my legs and stuff. Nice. Well, uh, this whole conversation, we're going to be talking about um, not just self-care, but caregiving in general, and uh, maybe 30 seconds before we were scheduled to go on, you made some notes. You wrote uh, a small novel down in here (laughs) related to uh, the intersection of like economics and politics and caregiving. And so I'm just gonna like grab this mug and like sit back because I'm really (laughs) interested in this take. Well, Thank you for the um, sub-read there. Uh, <laughs> but no, it was when I was mentioning the kind of sectors of our life that we think about we have to expend energy on, uh, I mentioned like work, um, studying, social interactions, uh, self-care. But something that gets left out a lot is caregiving. Um, so like caring for, for other people. And... Um, like 30% of Americans, which is about like 65 million people last year, were involved in caregiving for a family member, which is a stat that I just looked up uh, before this podcast (laughs) um, to give some context. But that's like a lot of people. And it's, yeah, if you think about it in terms of the amount of work done total in the economy, it's a huge proportion of the economy that if you're giving care to a parent or to a child, lets other people do other economically productive work. But we don't measure it like that. Um, I agree. I have um, one quick correction. Uh, you use the phrase sub-read, but I think I am a dom-read <laughs> person in general, just so you know. Um, and I think caregiving in general 
uh, is something we don't really think enough about, given that we're all kind of moving to this place where if we're lucky, then we will have someone there who will be a caregiver for us. Um, and so I am really, really, really excited to introduce our guest, Rachel Austin, who is um, an expert in caregiving. Uh, she's a performer, she's a caregiver, and she actually founded a nonprofit called the Love Labor Project, uh, which brings together a community dedicated to caregiving. Hey, Rachel, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jerome. Hi, Brendan. Hey, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Yay. We're really excited to have you. And um, I was very nervous about just talking about caregiving uh, in front of you, you know, because I thought, <laughs> oh, we're going to get corrected if we mess if we mess up. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. So watch it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was listening very intently to y'all's conversation there about caregiving and I have so many thoughts um, and many things I've learned from people much smarter than me <clears throat> in my time as a caregiver. So I would, I, we can definitely talk about it. I think Brendan, your point about it being at the intersection of economics and politics um, is very important, but also race, culture, um, all of that plays a part. So let's dig in. <laughs> let's just dig in. <laughs> I think I absolutely think that we should. And you mentioned intersections. And I'm very interested in this uh, intersection you have of performance, caregiving, and nonprofit life. And one thing that you provided to us in your bio is that you received a grant to produce a solo piece related to your caregiving. Can you tell us just a little bit about that piece and how you are uh, inspired to do that? Yeah, I definitely can. Um, so I have been a caregiver for my mom. So I'm a family I'm a family caregiver. That's generally what the term is for folks who care for a loved one and are generally unpaid. It's unpaid labor. Mm -hmm. So um, I've been a caregiver to my mom for the last 17 and a half years at this point. Um, and she's had ovarian cancer since I was 16, and it has been a really wild ride and quite the journey for both of us. Um, first of all, you don't usually see 17-year ovarian cancer survivors who have had mm. active cancer for that long. Um, some very fortunate women kind of catch it early, beat it, and then they become, you know, a, a multi-decade survivor, but they usually don't have so many recurrences. Um, so uh, my mom is not married. I am her only child. We're very, very close. Um, and it's just been quite, um, it has had the single biggest impact on my life probably of anything um, in terms of circumstances uh, that are just sort of thrown at you. And so I, um, I'm an actor, like Jerome said. Jerome and I actually met in an acting class. We did. <laughs> years ago now. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I was just looking at this uh, Minnesota State Arts Board grant application, and I was like, I think it's time. I think I need to write a piece about caregiving, and I think I need to get a community of caregivers together because I'm so sick and tired of doing this alone. Like, absolutely tired of going through this alone and so the you know one of my um one of my passions is performance and so i wrote this grant to develop a solo performance piece it felt really right to me that it was solo because 
this is the most isolating experience mm -hmm. um, of my life and it feels very, very lonely. So I thought that that was important. Um, and uh, I wound up winning the grant, which was such a blessing. And I remember reading, being on the treadmill at the YMCA and seeing the email come through and my throat just like sank into my stomach. And I was like, oh my God, now I have to make this thing. <laughs> oh my God, you know, what am I gonna do? Oh, I thought I had good ideas, but do I really? It's probably gonna be crap. What's happening? You know, all the voices. So um, there are a couple of things there. Uh, oh yeah. First, you know, just because I follow you on Instagram, the Rachel Austin at the Rachel Austin, you have a the lot of photos. Rachel Austin. Yes. The, the real Rachel Austin. The real Rachel Austin. The real the real Rachel Austin. Austin. Yeah. The real Rachel Austin. Austin. Um, you have a lot of photos of you and your mother, and she's she. From the photos, it looks like she's thriving and living just this wonderful, wonderful life. Um, yeah. I saw your piece, of course, uh, lots of caregivers in the audience, and it was so raw and so personal. And was that your first piece that you started I, and produced? No, I did a friend show that was a solo performance um, back when I was maybe 26. Um, and now I'm 33. So, you know, that was a very different experience. I was a completely different person. Yeah. Um, but what I'll say is that uh, I didn't know what the piece was going to be. I got that email that I re re referred to earlier. Yeah. And my mom had another massive situation come up like the following week. So I spent last year at, by my mom's side fighting with her um, for, you know, to keep her alive and to make the best decisions for her. And it was, um, January and February of 2019 were horrific. Mm. Um, and so my caregiving journey never stopped. Like I kind of thought I would have a break maybe and be able to be making the show, but that wasn't the case. And yeah. a lot of trauma came up. Like I didn't really know that I had PTSD from all of this, but I did. So it was extraordinarily complicated um, in terms of thinking about like what I was willing to share, what was okay, you know, to share about my mom, what, like, how do you even articulate some of what I've been through? And so I, I just, I really worked my ass off and I was constantly jotting down notes and like, even beyond that, like just getting a group of caregivers together, like I had to go out and find these people. And to say, like, is my experience universal or is it unique? And I found out that it was universal. I found out that people did want this. Yeah. I found out that we really kind of don't trust um, other institutions to, to support us. And so that really became clear that I needed to kind of branch off and start our own thing. Um, Ooh, okay. Show was, the show was a big flip in my personal life too for sure just in terms of my growth and whatever but yeah you look at my mom you think she's great yeah. um she had surgery last week she is at the end stage of her cancer which means that we're only doing palliative care at this point um and she is yeah it is it's not looking good for 2020 run right now I think 2021 is about to be I thought 2019 was the hardest year of my life I think it might be 2021 actually. So, um, so yeah, it's crazy. It's a, it's, it's wild, but I'm so glad like her attitude is so good and she does thrive and she 
has, um, she's so positive and she likes to get out there and do stuff. And, you know, I'm lucky. I've got a phenomenal patient. So no complaints. So before we go to break, since we are talking about the show and your mother in particular, um, did she have any input when you were writing the show? Was she part of that process? Uh, yes and no. Um, I didn't give her any information before she walked in opening night and saw it. Um, but we did have to develop timelines together. We sat down and looked at binders like this mm -hmm. um, of just all of her medical records. We pieced together, you know, everything from the number of CT scans that she's had in the last 17 and a half years. Now that's up to like 49. Um, the number of infusions she's had, the number of like uh, just all these different, all of yeah. these different things and, and, and trying to piece together the timeline of what this really was. And it was so fascinating. I mean, I'm sure, I think you probably remember this uh, from the show, Jerome, but the movement piece that had the projector in the back and the yeah. voiceover that gave, that sort of took you through the timeline. There was so much more than that. And we cut it out. And then trying to figure out, well, that's the moment where, you know, my grandparents died, or this is the part where I had to make that decision to move away or not. Or, you know, we were sort of connecting the dots between like her medical records and what was happening in our lives at that time and sort of how things came to be. And I think for both of us, we would go through it, go through it, jot down notes, jot down notes. And then we'd just stop and look at each other and be like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> that we've done that like th this is insane um so that's what that's where my mom helped me and also obviously I was like hey is it okay if we talk about you know you and yeah. your body and your yeah. disease very publicly and she was just she was open to it and you know I'm really grateful to her for that because I think that our story allows us being open about it really allows us to help other people in a different way I think um, I would say likewise, I'm really grateful that she was open to it and that you were able to be so vulnerable on stage because I left the experience really with an expanded worldview, um, not necessarily thinking to Brendan's point about the, you know, the economics of caregiving, but just about all of these people around me. I think Brendan said like 30% of the population who have stories that are similar to your stories but don't necessarily feel comfortable bringing that up over coffee yeah. the first time meeting them or what have you. So we have a lot to unpack, including how this performance led to you creating the Love Labor Project, if that's indeed how the timeline went. Um, but let's take the quickest of breaks uh, and then we'll come right back. Yay. I'm not sure if Rachel appreciates just how courageous and impressive she is. In my view, people don't talk about caregiving because it touches on subjects that make us feel extremely vulnerable. You know, actually, touches on isn't the right phrase. Caregiving is all about our inherent vulnerability as human beings. It's the care that we need when we're at our most vulnerable. And because we often want people to think of us as healthy, strong, and long-lived, we just don't talk about it. Most of us definitely would not create a one-person show about the emotional toll that caregiving takes. We do our job as a caregiver, and then we try to shape the rest of our life to look like it would if we didn't have to be caregivers. 
Rachel made a different choice. She wrote and starred in the show. Then she founded a nonprofit to bring people together because as tough as it is being a young caregiver, it's so much more difficult when you're doing it without support. Everyone. And we made it 15 minutes into the conversation. You know, you know that's you good. Everyone. Up, Jerome, you brought it up. No one else was thinking about it until you brought it up. You needed a dick break. That's okay. I know my, I know my guests. <laughs> I know my guests. <laughs> and co-host. Uh, and co-host. You're absolutely right. Uh, Brendan, I'm gonna, I'll bring us in. And then do you want to ask about that working definition and um, about why it's an isolating experience? You got it, dude. Pew, pew, finger gun. You got it, dude. I kept saying that around Henry, and he did not know the reference because he didn't grow up with American television. Henry is Brendan's boyfriend. Yes. Mm. Somewhere around. I want a boyfriend. <laughs> talk about caregiving. There are a lot of work. I know. We can actually talk about caregiving and dating. You want to know why it's an isolating experience? Let's get into it. Okay. I mean, if you want to. <laughs> I'm, I'm an open book. You know this. Yeah, I do. That, that, this, is my, this is my purpose. So here we go. Got to tell the truth. Okay, we are back with Brendan and Rachel. And Rachel is our open book on caregiving. And our break, she was like, you got to tell the truth. You can tell it like it is. Uh, and so Brendan's got questions. And Rachel is going to give it to us straight. I've, yeah, I've got questions. I mean, first of all, let's contextualize this. Um, can you give us a working definition of what caregiving is? Yeah, absolutely. So there's multiple forms of caregiving. And um, just one quick note, in, in the UK, for example, they call them carers. So I'm sure that you've been seeing through COVID and things, if you follow the royal family and whatnot, they talk a lot about carers, thanking carers. So caregiver, caregivers, carers, there are obviously professional caregivers, folks who you hire, they come into your home, they are professional caregivers. You also have, um, you know, uh, healthcare workers are considered a type of caregiver. And then you've got family caregivers. And that's what I am. Those are people who it's just unpaid labor to the tune of billions of dollars every year um, of just unpaid labor. And um, my working definition of caregiver in terms of the work that I do with Love Labor Project is anyone who has a parent or a loved one with a serious chronic and or terminal illness. So whether you're at their bedside or you're talking about your mom who lives four states away, um, we had a woman uh, uh, zoom in from Europe um, whose, whose mom is actually here. Uh, a few weeks ago to a support group. And so it doesn't matter if you're the one giving bedside care. If you are dealing with a loved one who is very, very ill, I consider you to be a caregiver. I've been at the bedside of my mom. I've been in college while someone else has been at the bedside of my mom. Like I've done it all the ways. And let me tell you, it's all caregiving. Well, cause there's lots of work that's not just being at the bedside, right? Exactly, exactly. There's the calling on the phone making sure you're okay, perking you up, all, just always thinking about it. It's the fact that there's always this person who you're making decisions around. Hmm. You know, it's that feeling of, of losing your autonomy a little bit 
And every single decision that I make for my life, I think about how it will impact my mom. And my mom did not do that when she was my age. She didn't yeah. think about her mom. She was like, let me think about what I want. Um, you know, so it's, it's a very different experience, which is why I'm like, yeah, we're all categorized together because we are all dealing with a lot of the same, um, emotions. So that kind of leads into my, my next question. Um, you mentioned that it was an incredibly isolating experience, um, to be doing this, um, caregiving as it seems would be inherently your at least a two person experience, right? Because you are connected with the person that you are giving care to. Um, what about it was so isolating and why, if there are so many Americans and uh, people around the world that are caregivers, why do they not communicate with each other in the way that, um, that you felt? Yeah. Um, that is a really fantastic question and I'm going to start answering it and forget the second half of it. So remind me about the second half of the question. Will do. Um, but the, do you remember when COVID started this year? I know you've got to think back to like that's decades ago <laughs> in our bodies, but think back to that feeling of like, you can't leave your house. You can't see people. You can't like, when you think about how it felt to you, um, an average, you know, human living in the United States, when we went into lockdown, what that did to us and what that did to our psychology. And we heard it from everyone. All of a sudden, everybody lost control, right? They thought that they had control, yeah. you know? So what I would say is that, yes, it's a two person deal because you're caring for a patient, but th that doesn't mean that the patient is entertaining me. And it doesn't mean that anybody that that's kind of a, <laughs> that's, funny. that's really funny to me but it's like it doesn't mean that that we're hanging out it doesn't mean that um she is thinking about me and my needs because in that moment it's all about what she needs so I'm not even thinking about myself I'm thinking about her so um it's so even though you're there with a person a lot of the time they're heavily medicated they need you you're literally trying to figure out how to plan out. Okay, so I, they have to eat before they take these pills. Well, that means that I need to get into the kitchen and start making that at this time, do that time. Did I write down what time they took their pills? Have I called the doctor? Have I done this, right? So then think about that being like basically the foundation of your life for that moment mm -hmm. um, or for a long moment. And then think about what that means for your social life or your dating life or your school life or your work life, all of a sudden your life becomes so small. It becomes a little pinpoint in like a sea of, uh, of different, you know, I don't know. I feel like everybody else's life sometimes when I'm caregiving is so bright and vibrant. And I am just like sitting underneath the rainbow in a teeny tiny little corner over here dealing with what I'm dealing with. And it's really difficult with peer support, especially when you're young, which is why I care so much about you know, the millennial generation really getting into yeah. this and talking about it is that our peers don't know how to show up for us in that moment. I mean, should they know how? No, they shouldn't know how, which is why we're talking about it because nobody who is 16 years old should be dealing with, you know, some of the stuff that I was dealing with, but that's life. Like that's reality. So the shit is going to happen. The bad things are going to happen. People will kind of maybe rush to help you right at the beginning but what you really need is that base of, I need caregivers to meet. 
And now I have that with a central group of girlfriends, just to give you an example, who even from different parts of the country will door dash me food, will make sure that I'm eating, will call and, you know, want to have a Zoom, will just send, hey, I know you're busy, I'm just checking in. You know, it, there's so many things um, okay. That, okay. that folks can do. So let me just um, reflect back and make sure that I'm on the same page with you, and I think that I am, but we'll see. You'll tell me if I'm not. Um, <laughs> to Brendan's, I, I know you. I know you well, Rachel. <laughs> um, to Brendan's question about why it's an isolating experience, I think I was hearing that the experience of being cared for and the experience of being a caregiver are so distinct that the person being cared for maybe doesn't even realize what the experience of the caregiver is. And so you can't you can't share things in that way. Um, and so in kind of a response to that need for support, you created the Love Labor Project. And I want to hear more about it because apparently they will door dash you things, um, which is probably not, you know, the heart of it. But I'm, I'm hungry. So <laughs> tell us about the Love Labor Project. Please, and pretend yeah. as though well, we don't know what it is, because Brendan, I don't think that's... Yeah, not. absolutely. <laughs> and right before I jump into Love Labor Project, I do just want to say that there's a really interesting um, dynamic that occurs between the patient and the caregiver, because, like, let's let's talk about me and my mom. That's my person, you know? Mm -hmm. she, is, she is dying. How, what do I want to make the moments about when I'm with her? Yeah. What do we want to talk about? How much of my burden do I want her to carry? You know, mm -hmm. these patients are working very hard to get well or to be okay or to be a more typical, have a more typical life. They're working hard and they're focused on that. Should they necessarily be focused on the caregiver? No, I, I don't necessarily think so. I think an awareness is really important, but a focus, certainly not. So for me, it's more about, it, it, there's just a weird tension and a weird dynamic. My mom and I are very open with each other about emotional stuff, but it's a lot. Like sometimes I don't want to go to her and be like, you're dying and I'm really upset about it because I don't want her to think about the fact that she's dying. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that you get, there's a weird push and pull of emotions as well, you know, and when it's your parent, when it's somebody, um, your spouse, somebody who you rely on for that emotional support and all of a sudden you don't have that from them too. Mm. I mean, the grief then the isolation is real. And so that is a perfect segue actually into Love Labor Project because that's really what um, what we're there for is, is, is the emotional piece and the support of the caregiver. Um, so Love Labor Project is a nonprofit that provides support to young adults who are 20 years old to 40 years old. And there's a little wiggle room on either side. Um, and right now it's for those who have a parent with a serious chronic and or terminal illness. And the way that we offer support, we did a lot of, um, of value mapping together. Uh, when I convened the group, I have a, a, a background in community engagement. So for me, I wanted to create a bias for us model um, okay. because that's what we need. We need to decide what we need to take care of ourselves and how we want to um, how we want that support system to look, right? So we did a lot of value mapping and everything, and it was so surprising and unsurprising to me that the three things that I wanted were support groups that were specific to young adults. 
I don't want to listen to a 65 year old person who's caring for their husband. Tell me that, well, why is it a big deal? Your parents are supposed to die before you like, no, you don't get it. You don't get that. I'm building my life. You don't get that. I'm giving up careers. You don't get that. I'm like, hello. I don't have a husband. You know, I want one of those to you. Oh, people say the wildest things to you. So I wanted a support group that was like uh, just for us. I wanted a community of young adult caregivers, like a social network. And I wanted educational opportunities. And damn it, if every young caregiver that I talked to didn't ask for the exact same three things. So when you looked around and you were like, you knew you needed these things and other people also knew they needed these things. And you looked around and was there just nothing is it piecemeal? Um, what made you be like, I need to create this thing? Yeah, there there are some things that are starting to form around family caregivers and family caregiving. And uh, there are some incredible organizations working towards policy. And it's really, they're working towards policy around a, a deep-seated inequity and white supremacy in this nation because those structures, people who help you, think about how we view people who help, Mm. you know, it's not great, particularly like caregivers and domestic workers. And so there, um, there's a lot of, uh, uh, of organizations that kind of work towards that. Um, there's the AARP who does care about caregiving. And then there are some little nonprofits here and there, um, who are more generalized caregiver support. Um, and I was really just like, I was on the millennial train, and that's that's sort of where where I'm at, because like I mentioned before, like I just really kind of don't I don't want to hear it anymore. And I think a yeah. lot of other people didn't really want to hear it either. And we're focused on very different things. And a lot of you know, it's funny because I, I'll get um, people that hit us up on Instagram and be like, hey, we'd love to do a collaboration. Or I'll get an email or something. And they want to offer me a product that to use with the patient to use with my loved one because they think that that will help ease the burden of the caregiver. Hmm. And while I appreciate some of that tactical functional support, I'm not interested. I'm interested in focusing only on the caregiver and the caregiver experience and really their mental health and their self-care. And that doesn't involve talking about what we can do for the patient. So, um, okay, I, I really wanna ask this question. So I'll ask this question and then we'll take another quick break. Um, okay. Can you tell me, like, I heard you mentioned Zoom before. So it sounds like these are Zoom meetings right now. Um, yes. But what is a meeting like for the Love Labor? Yeah, Project? absolutely. Oh, and I know that Brendan loves stats. So I do want to oh, say that 25% of 25% of family caregivers right now are millennials. Um, and that number is growing and will be growing rapidly, um, particularly with the healthcare system and its implications and that, you know, economics in this country, a lot of people can't afford to hire people to help them. And also culturally, that is not always um, what families want to decide to do. And that's perfectly awesome. Um, So anyway, what does a meeting look like? So right now, yeah, they're over Zoom. We were a Minnesota, like, you know, Twin Cities based organization. And so we were meeting like the first or second Saturday of the month at Sovereign Grounds down in South Minneapolis. And it was like lovely. Um, but with Zoom, it's been, or with COVID and Zoom, it's just been a real blessing to be able to expand out um, to a national and international friends. 
um, and community. So it usually looks like we log on. Um, it is a very informal conversation. It's a little bit of a mix of a support group and a hangout. Um, we've talked about everything from like, it, you know, if you want to share about a scan that your parent had this week or a fall that they had this week or whatever, like, absolutely. Like we share that. We also talk about dating. We talk about work-life balance. We talk about how frustrated we are with fill in the blank, uh, whether it's a friend who really doesn't understand and is pushing us to do stuff and we really can't because it's COVID and we've got a sick parent at home that we're taking care of, you know, all of these different things. But the thing is, um, is that everything is within the context of caregiving, you know, because I feel like when you talk about dating with your friends who aren't caregivers, it's a very different experience for them. And yeah. for us, it's something that it's like, when do you tell somebody on a date that you're caring for your mom? When do you bring up that you've got this like sick parent that might have to live with you? When do you bring up that like, uh, you know, she's dying or like, I mean, what do you do? And then, yeah, it just gets very, very complicated. And when you add on the fact that like, so for me, I would really like to get married and have a family. And I always thought that my mom was going to be around for that. And mm. guess what? She is not. So, you know, it's a different thing for me to talk about my dreams for the future because my mom won't be there. Like it's, you know, it's a, it's a wild ride. So it sounds like this is a space where you can have some emotional intimacy with yeah. people with a share who are having a shared experience. Yes. Um, is it, do you I find that, care. go ahead. I was just saying, and who care? Yeah. Let me tell you what, if you're looking for a best friend, find you a caregiver because they are just the best <laughs> beings. Like I, these folks are just incredible. I mean, I cannot say enough good things about these people. They're wonderful. So do you have a, a kind of a, a friendship with some of these people outside of the meetings? Yes, absolutely. Um, so we've got folks from everywhere from like Washington state to um, Atlanta to uh, Pennsylvania, to Alabama, to Texas, to Minnesota, like, and then, like I said, we had Europe a few weeks ago or whatever. Yeah. I actually, there's some of us that are um, all a part of sort of the movement of building organizations and businesses that support young adult caregivers. And so okay. we have our own collaborations behind the scenes and we really try to help each other with our business plans and with our, um, just talking through what that looks like. So there's a support network of founders behind the scenes. Then there's like this whole community that they're a part of that's like the millennial caregiver community that's hanging out. And then, yeah, we're friends, we're there. I mean, we had a member who's, um, whose parent passed away and folks went to the service. I mean, this was before COVID, but yeah, like we, sh we show up for each other. And it's, it's really, really great. Did well, I answer that question? You did. And it was uh, one, you didn't answer. You answered both questions. And it was my bad. I was only supposed to ask you the one before we took a break. So we'll be right back. We'll talk a lot about policy on this podcast, either about what policies are doing for us or what they're not doing for us, what the law is or what it should be. In our conversation with Rachel, we talked about how caregiving isn't really valued in our society and 
so it isn't considered in our economy. For the most part, you don't get paid for taking care of sick family or friends. Or if you do, there are some clear strings attached. But like we talked about at the top of the episode, everybody needs a caregiver at one point and then again at another point over the course of their lives. So why don't we have sick leave that kicks in when your best friend is ill? Maternal and paternal leave that lasts until the child is independent or, at the very least, public childcare. Time off to care for someone who is depressed or otherwise having a mental health crisis, and I could go on. We'll get back to the conversation, but I do want to invite you to think about how you're impacted by how our society views caregiving. This holds doubly true if you're a business owner or a manager. You really should think about the kind of leave options that your organization offers and compare it to the statements that your organization makes about how much it cares for its employees. Do those statements and that leave policy match up? Thank you for giving that some thought. We are back with Bottomless Coffee with Rachel Austin at the real Rachel Austin on Instagram. Um, and we're having an amazing conversation. I'm so grateful for you to be here. And one thing I think that a lot of people listening or watching are gonna be itching for is um, how we, as people who don't identify as caregivers, can support the caregivers um, that we may in our, in our lives in some way. Um, and ideally without offending, right? Um, because I know sometimes asking those basic questions or those are like responses you don't want to give, you know, you don't want to talk about it. So what can we do? Absolutely. That's such a great question. Um, one of the things that I really care a lot about is how we show up for each other. And I think that that goes far yeah. beyond the caregiving um, sphere of things and is just a more generalized um I don't know, it's worth talking about. And so I would say that the two biggest things is just remembering that when you ask someone who's caring for a loved one, how their parent is or how their loved one is or whatever, and you sort of want a response, it's like about the bad thing going on or about the illness mm. or about whatever. It takes very little for you to ask that question and it takes a hell of a lot for me to answer. This is something that I'm going through in my life that's very, um, it's very tender. Yeah. and. People care and they want to ask and I do the same thing. And so it's not that it's inherently bad to ask like how somebody's doing or whatever, but just to be mindful of how and when you bring that up. Uh, you know, I've, uh, I've been at a party before when someone asked how my mom was and I was really just trying to like escape and dance yeah. and be drunk. And then, you know, I had to sit down for 10 minutes with this person and make them feel better. And because that's what it winds up being. It's not usually about the asker wanting to make sure that you're okay. Sadly, it becomes this thing of like, oh, I need to take care of this. I need to make this information palatable to this person. You know, like, so it, this it's is, rough. This is so interesting because you wanna circle back around a little bit. You, as a caregiver who's already kind of feeling isolated from the millennial experience, are going to a party, um, ideally to connect with the millennial experience, just like get drunk, 
dance or what have you. And so someone thinking they're doing the right thing by asking you um, about your caregiving is like really taking you out of the experience that you want to be in. Yeah, like just pick your moments because it's not that I resent you caring because that would just, that's awful. And I certainly don't feel that way. Yeah, I think people are incredibly kind and generous. And there are so many people who've asked after me and after my mom over the last 17 years that I just, I'm so grateful. It's just sort of being aware that for us, it's not an Instagram story or a Facebook mm. moment or whatever. It's real and it's hard and it's painful. And there are just times when it's better to ask and times when it isn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so just yeah. being mindful. And then the other piece of that in terms of what people can do is I really want to get after this phrase, let me know if you need anything. Okay. Let me know if you need anything. We all say it. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. But let me tell you what it feels like on the other side sometimes is like, I don't know what I need. Or like, you don't really want to help me. You just like, you. I don't know. It, it, it starts to feel performative after a while. It isn't real. It's, it, you know, when I'm caring for my mom, I'm not thinking about myself. I'm not thinking about what I need. You know, I'm very much in the zone. And so for, um, I'm from Texas. I feel like that's really important to mention. Okay. And where I'm from, people just show up. They show up. They show up with casseroles. They show up with pies. They show up with whatever the hell. They show up with helping hands. They show up with whatever. Yeah. And, um, and so for me, I really, really love it when my friends are like, Hey, I want to, I want to get you dinner once this week. So just let me know which night you're going to be home and I'll bring something over or, Hey, would it be cool if I took care of your grocery shopping this week for you? You know, um, because maybe you don't have time or it, it's just, it's really random. And yes, it's, it's mostly about those people that are really in your close circle. I think yeah. it gets harder. Like the more you go out, um, and the more, the further out the rings go, it does get more complicated. And the let me know if you need anything sure. seem to fit with certain relationships. But I just think it's it's a little bit empty. I mean, and I would the, challenge us all to do a little better with that. At the same time, people who you've met like once at a party three weeks ago don't need to really be asking you these personal questions anyway, right? And they do, <laughs> they do, because they know it's my work. They see it on Instagram. Um, follow the At Love Labor Project Instagram because that's where um, that's where we really get into it. But people who know that it's me pulling the strings behind or whatever, you know, they want to talk about it. And so there's a lot of days where I feel like I have cancer daughter written across my forehead. And mm. to be perfectly honest with y'all, I hate that. Yeah. I've been doing this for so long that I would like to just be myself. I want to live my own life. I want to have my own thing going on. Like I wish I had that kind of freedom. Um, so yeah, some of it's about a little bit of resentment around that for me too, I'm sure. But it is also something that I hear across the board, um, for sure. Well, so, so oh, go ahead, Brina. I was going to say shifting gears a little bit. Um, I just wanted to ask, you know, through this experience of, of creating this support network, um, through the love labor project, what is something that you learned uh, from creating that community that you didn't know before you founded this nonprofit? 
Yeah, I think I really didn't know how universal it was. I didn't know how universal the things that I felt were and how desperately people were seeking that. Um, and then I think that through the show and the responses to the show from non-caregivers, mm. I think I also have started to put together a sense of understanding around ideas of millennial resilience because I think that that's... Uh, very ubiquitous in what I'm talking about. That's a, it's a big part of what we deal with. Is it something um, specific to the millennial generation or is it, you know, I young think so, people? Absolutely. I think every generation has a different, uh, has a different vibe. I think that when people talk about millennials, you're, you know, we've seen it this year with COVID, just like the laundry list that people can come up with on the internet and memes of like, millennials have now been through a this, a this, a this, a this, a that, yeah. a this, a, a this, you know, and so we might not, ha we don't have the, um, the lockdown drills in schools like kids today have. We had a different thing yeah. that has traumatized us as a generation. <laughs> where they, you know what I mean? Several so I different things, several yes. multiple yeah. financial collapses, <laughs> pandemics. Exactly, yes. exactly. So when you're looking at like millennials and you're saying things feel tenuous, they look at you and they're like, don't I know it? <laughs> Where older generations are like, well, why is it tenuous for you? Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get an education, get a job. And it's like, oh, oh no. I graduated in 09. Don't play with me. <laughs> I, think I was the recession class. <laughs> I think that's one of the wonderful things about the Love Labor Project is that you're, you're organizing a community, right? And so you're there for each other. And, um, you know, personally, as a politician, I have to ask a policy-related question. Um, it's actually in the contract for uh, Bottomless Coffee that we have to do a policy it's, question. It's uh, great. Obligatory. Um, <laughs> okay, what, you have to be smart. If you had a magic wand or whatever, what policy pr proposal would you immediately enact? Uh, that would be paid leave for family caregivers. Without missing a beat. Okay. Without, that would be, yeah. It's, I think that the biggest burden for, for family caregivers in terms of what policy could do beyond universal healthcare and taking mm. care of the citizens of this country is also some kind of paid family medical leave, whether it's through a disability program, you know, uh, through like long-term disability or whatever that could be. Um, through the government. I mean, we already talk about the fact that our generation isn't going to have social security. Well, what if social security money was going to fund young adult caregivers who were actually having to not work because they needed to take care of somebody? And the government want, wouldn't want to foot the bill of how much it would cost to care for that person either. May I just yeah. say, it is so wildly expensive. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what I would say. So distinct from the Love Labor Project, um, mm -hmm. What can someone watching or listening do to support you, Rachel? Uh, to support me or to support caregivers? Well, I would say to support you, wonderful Ooh. human who has created this community and has shared so much oh, of herself wow. with like, the world. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, That's typical like caregiver nice response. <laughs> Think of someone else. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I, well, uh, you know, I would love it if everybody would please just take a second think of people in your life who are your age who are millennials or young adults 
who are going through something really hard and maybe have a loved one who is sick, whether they live with them or not, and just reach out to them. I think that the biggest favor that you could do for me, to me, whatever, is to reach out to them, to let them know that Love Labor Project exists, mm. that we're there for them no matter where they live, that they can attend anything with us for free. We provide all of our prog programming at zero cost to caregivers. Um, that I am, I am out there. I am a real person. I can do like one-on-one -on -one conversations. Just please hit me up. Um, so, and I, and then I think my next favor would just be to say, next time you want to say, let me know if you need anything, maybe suggest an option instead. And in terms of, um, of a favor to me, like we are still, we're a baby nonprofit. We're growing, we're excited. We've got amazing programming coming up. We have an educational workshop series with a friend of mine, Bahamia Ulysses, who's at Nurse in the Know on Instagram. And we're gonna be talking about like designing your caregiver experience and uh, navigating difficult family dynamics and things like that. So that's coming up in December. Um, so awesome. please just spread the word. We want all the millennial caregivers to have a home, even if they're only caregiving for a few months out of their life or whatever, like you're welcome. Please, please, please just come and find us. We're here for you. And you we're really so. cool and nice. <laughs> you are really cool and nice. Um, so <laughs> follow at Love Labor Project on Instagram. And then for actual human conversation, follow and DM, nice DMs only, at The Real Rachel Austin on Instagram. Cool. Thank you guys so much. Thank this you. Has been fabulous. Thanks for, you know, giving us a, an opportunity to, to bring some more visibility to millennial caregivers, because here's the deal. It's coming for all of us. Yeah. The way that the economy is going, the way that healthcare looks in this country right now, every millennial walking is going to have to be a caregiver at some point or another. So let's just be sure that we build up the best infrastructure for that, that we can. Well, we're doing this to lift people like you up. And so, yay, gratitude received. Oh, thank you so much, you guys. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks. Bye, Brendan. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye, Rachel. Okay. Do you remember the end of episode one when I asked Alex how we could support them and they mentioned all these other organizations? Well, I'm sensing a trend. Rachel and Alex both deserve to be supported in their individual capacity and I will make sure that happens. Please go to patreon.com slash bottomlesscoffee and become a community member. I'll draw from what you pledge to directly support the people who deserve it. On the next episode of Bottomless Coffee, we're talking about shifting people from one political ideology to another with Aaron Minkama. Aaron is a former Republican who is now a staunch progressive. You won't want to miss it. Thank you.